Supernova. Supernova Earth number 19. Part 1 of The Practical Effects of Time Travel. For those of you who have wondered, who have been wondering where I have been for several weeks, um, I sort of ran out of ideas for the show. So, uh, in order to get back into recording and get back into podcasting, I'm going to actually start reading my novel on the show, and I'll be broadcasting it out and and uh, taking no money for it. It's a free audio book. You can take a listen to this, and I'll be serializing it. I'll read one chapter a week. Uh, for the foreseeable future, it'll probably be, you know, well into October or November before I even finish the book. But, um, hopefully, uh, I get it done and hopefully, uh, we're able to actually get the book read. We'll see how it goes and we'll, we'll look at the logistics of everything. It'll probably just come out in my voice now that I think about it. But, uh, if you're listening to Supernova Earth, uh, 19 from now until, you know, whenever I get this done, I'll be reading The uh, Practical Effects of Time Travel, a memoir by myself, William Doc Stodden. Uh, so stay tuned and, and uh, keep listening. Here's part one. The Practical Effects of Time Travel, a memoir. William P. Stodden, Moorhead, Minnesota, and Ames, Iowa. Copyright 2020. Uh, it's under Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial share alike, 4.0 international license, which means you can take this work and you can repost it, whatever, just don't make any money on it. And if you do repost it, make sure you give the credit to the author, which is myself. Forward. Bellamy and Looking Backward. 2000 to 1887. This book, The Practical Effect of Time Travel, a memoir, is written in deliberate imitation of 19th century authors Edward Bellamy's most famous work, Looking Backward, 2000 to 1887. In Bellamy's work, a man of substantial means travels into the future via sleep and finds that the world has been radically altered. The Gilded Age capitalism to which the narrator and protagonist, whose name is Julian West, was immersed, has ended, and in its place is a society governed by pragmatism and efficiency, where all labor is performed by a universally conscripted labor army directed by an apolitical Congress of the United States. Bellamy did not call this system socialism, but nationalism, as society was organized along socialistic lines for the benefit of the entire nation and all of its people. We should be careful to separate his meaning of nationalism from the horrors of ultranationalism of the late 19th and early 20th century, which Bellamy could not possibly have predicted at the time of his writing, but which on their own led to two world wars and millions slaughtered on the altar of national interest. Since Bellamy wrote his book, just as the term nationalism has come to mean something entirely different from what he intended, the meaning of the term socialism has also been altered completely. It has been captured by either the Marxists, with Bellamy's vision subsequently labeled and marginalized, then sneeringly discarded by the Marxists themselves as utopian, or alternatively co-opted by the nominally radical, in the United States terms, left wing of the Democratic Party, who uses the term to mean social democracy or welfare statism rather than the fundamental alteration of the economic and social structure of the United States. But during his time, Bellamy was widely read in the United States and was incredibly influential. The labor leader and future socialist Eugene V. Debs declared that Bellamy, who 
was who bought him to the socialism. Shortly before Bellamy's death in 1898, Debs and Bellamy decided to work together to found a socialist party on Bellamy's program, and that became the nucleus of the Socialist Party of America that formed three years later. Though written in imitation of Bellamy's classic novel, this manuscript contains several important differences that are designed primarily to bring up to date, but also to substantially revise Bellamy's vision of the future. For those who have read Bellamy's famous work, the most noticeable omission of the content will be the lack of a romantic sub-narrative. That Mr. West should have fallen in love with Edith Leet was always kind of tangential and strange for me, reading the novel as I did for the first time in the actual 21st century. The Victorian romance was anachronistic to my modern mind, and Bellamy himself claimed that he did it to sort of sweeten the medicine, making his philosophy more palatable for his contemporary audience. Given my choice of narrator, a love story grafted on top of a philosophical sci-fi memoir seemed rather forced, at least. In reality, I just didn't think that it added anything to the story. But more substantially, though Marxists and socialists have decried the original book as utopian and totalitarian, respectively, it does strike of materialism, an assumption that I do not adopt a priori. The prevailing socio-political institution in Bellamy's society is the economic system both in terms of production and in terms of consumption. For Bellamy, the state itself has withered away to almost nothing. There is no crime because, Bellamy states, there is no material want. Therefore, there is no need of laws. The state, as a coercive apparatus, has, as Marx predicted, become superfluous in Bellamy, and only exists to direct the great national effort in a completely apolitical fashion. I would assert that, as a vehicle of social development, the hard materialism and determinism of Marx's vision of history is neither realistic nor is it preferable to a more metaphysical sort of awakening of conscience. Therefore, I do not dispense with the political system as completely as Bellamy does, nor do I make the foundation of the new order a purely rational and therefore entirely materialistic one. Another choice I made was to attempt to write the narrator as a female. It is not so difficult to imagine that a woman would serve as captain of industry these days, though during Bellamy's era, this would necessarily be impossible, given the fact that women were not even able to vote, and in most places their husbands and fathers had complete control over them, their lives, and their property. The evolution of society between the time that Bellamy wrote and when I began this book afforded me the opportunity to make two points. One, Bellamy neglected his female characters and the feminist question almost entirely in looking backward and I could at least begin to rectify some of that neglect in this update. But more importantly, too, a female capitalist would act identically to a male capitalist because it is class that colors a person's attitude towards society. I believe that blaming one's care or hard-heartedness on gender is a sexist argument, and I do not accept the notion that I, as a man and a working son of a working-class mother myself, have more in common with a rich man than I do a poor woman. The difference in my status comes from how others treat me as a result of my sex and my gender. But my attitudes toward others are my own, and therefore they are my own responsibility. Finally, I acknowledge that my capitalist in the story is a bit of a caricature of a wealthy person. My protagonist Julia's attitudes, when spoken, are deliberately bombastic, in many cases, because she must serve as a foil for the society that she's arrived in. I do not apologize for this. The goal is to show that any person, even one with such regressive attitudes toward their fellow human beings, can be redeemed if placed in a better context. Her hard heart can be softened if given the opportunity and the correct social incentives. No person in society is beyond redemption, and it was not her moral character that made her hold the beliefs she expresses, 
but the society that she came from, our current, that literally rewards antisocial behavior. When that incentive structure is eliminated, she can finally, maybe for the first time in her life, realize her mutual humanity with society. As such, this is not a blueprint for a future society, but a call for all of us to be better. We can start today, and we do not have to wait for more than a century to pass. Or I might add, for a socialist revolution to occur. Finally, I will say that this book represents just one of many possible visions of the future. It is not necessary that the developments that I detail within the book directly lead to the changes you see in the narrative. One may object that such a radical reordering of society is not possible without violent revolution. I happen to disagree, and I can imagine scenarios where it could happen, and rather easily. I detail one of those scenarios in this book, but at the end of the day, this is a work of science fiction and philosophy. It is a thought experiment meant to encourage the reader to think about possibilities for the future. In other words, it is meant to show the reader that the world we live in today does not have to be this way. It could be different. I may not have all the answers, and as a program for revolution, this book will not satisfy even reformers. But it is an idea and it is worth considering on its own merits, not judged by external criteria such as whether or not it passes the crass ideological prescriptions found in the screeds of Marx, Lenin, or Mao. Other differences will be obvious to the readers of Bellamy, and to those who have never heard of him, those differences will be absolutely transparent. With this, I present The Practical Effects of Time Travel, a memoir. William Stodden, 11th month, 2016. You are listening to the Supernova Earth Show. In the past 15 years, the major record labels have used copyright law to virtually eliminate sampling from hip-hop. If an independent DJ or producer samples major label music without permission, they'll get sued. But in most cases, getting that permission is impossible or simply too expensive. Meanwhile, a rock, blues, or country musician can cover any song they want and pay a simple flat rate. It works for them, and it works for the songwriter. Hip-hop musicians need the same rights. Turntables and samplers are instruments, and all musicians should have the most creative freedom possible. To learn more about what you can do, visit downhillbattle.org. This record is called Tell Us The Truth. The Supernova Earth Show. We do what we do so you don't have to. Preface about the author and some preliminary observations. My name is Julia Cassandra Benantz. I am currently a conscript private in the National Service Program, attached to the National Archives at the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., and I'm nearly finished with my first term of service to the Republic. I have been commissioned by the National Historical Association here in Washington to compose a narrative account detailing my life in the 22nd century. You will likely remember the myriad news stories announcing my arrival and all the attention paid to me as a result, so you will know that my story is quite unlike any other true story ever told. Back then, they called this type of story science fiction. Authors used to write fictional books with similar plot lines, but nothing quite so strange ever happened to a real person until it happened to me. What I have decided to do is compose my well-known story in the form of a memoir, based on a true story, they used to say. I have changed names throughout the story, because while I am deeply grateful for the welcome I received upon my arrival, most of my characters are still very much alive and well, and have asked me not to use their real names or to divulge their exact address. As they feel the publicity will greatly disrupt their lives, 
more than my inexplicable appearance already has. Fame is wonderful for those who seek it, but my friends and rescuers are quiet people and humbly do not seek the limelight. The conversations are presented as they happen, for the most part, though many of the details throughout the book are anachronistic because when I arrived, I was so dazed and confused about my new conditions of life that the exact order of events covered within are more than a little jumbled. I have tried to compensate for this into the flow of the narrative where possible, to provide as seamless a tale as I could. I have kept most of the historical facts in place, though, and have even set this memoir in a place where it actually happened, that being the sleepy city of Moorhead, Minnesota. Most of you will already be intimately familiar with the essential details of my life thus far. For the record, I was born June 26, 1983, at 1.23 a.m. in the city of Arlington Heights, Illinois. When I arrived in the 22nd century, it was early morning Tuesday, May 30th, 2141. That makes my age, at the instant of my arrival, just a few weeks shy of 158 years old. On that day, I earned the record for being the oldest living human in the world. I am indistinguishable from any other 37-year-old woman. I am 5 feet 7 inches tall, have a slender build with a professionally long, dark hair and blue eyes. I unfortunately still wear glasses as I have a phobia of contact lenses, but did not get around to corrective surgery before I left my time. Since my arrival in the 22nd century three years ago, I have been one of the most photographed women in the country, so I am sure that you would easily recognize my face if you saw it. Compared to the stunning beauties of this generation, however, I might appear to be rather unremarkable if you weren't already aware of my strange biography. I have been tasked here to provide you with some idea of the progress of history focusing on the differences between my time and yours. So I will start off by saying that the city of my birth, Arlington Heights, was one of the wealthiest suburbs of Chicago, and in fact, one of the wealthiest communities in the entire country. My family was extremely well off, and their fortune made my young life easy. Wealth ensured that we always lived comfortably, and had accumulated more wealth than several generations of my family could ever possibly use. My parents' friends were all rich like us, and all my friends were children of rich parents. I attended the best schools, which were publicly funded with property taxes, but privately operated and very exclusive, benefiting only a tiny portion of the students, those growing up in the wealthiest households. Influential citizens like my parents ensured that it remained this way in Arlington Heights. I had the best clothes and ate the healthiest food. My family dutifully attended church on Sundays, which was non-denominational Protestant, of course, we had several vacation houses, which we used only a couple weeks out of every year. I skied in Colorado every winter and stayed at the family's home in Long Island, New York, every summer. I toured Europe with my grandparents four times during my teenage years. I was, in fact, more than comfortable. I should not have to point out, but I feel that I must, because nobody seems to understand entrenched privilege in this era, that my family had been wealthy for generations. Here's how my family's wealth was originally created. My great-great-grandfather worked for a living. The story of my family's fortune was that the old man worked in a wildcat, or illegal mine, until, through unimaginable thrift and austerity, he bought himself controlling interest in a small silver stake in southwestern Colorado, near the town of Creed. And then he and his friends struck one of the wealthiest silver veins ever recorded, the Sweet Sally Lode, which ran ten miles under some long-abandoned ghost town. The Sweet Sally and other mines on the Lode were subsequently mined for more than 100 years, and my ancestor became fabulously rich, though not from mining itself. As soon as he made his first $30,000 in profit, he sold out his interest and opened a store that catered to the material needs of the miners who arrived at, 
in the ensuing gold rush that his gold fortune has created. He sold picks and shovels and pans, and rope and all sorts of other mining gear, along with food, clothing, and rumor has it, illicit entertainment. He ran for Congress at one point. He passed down a small fortune to my great-grandfather, who was born in the 1880s. My great-grandfather used his inheritance and the revenues he raised selling off the mercantile to buy into a factory that made machine parts. Aircrafts were all the rage, and with the U.S.'s entry into World War I, my great-grandfather got a major contract to supply the U.S. military with components for aircraft engines. He made so much money during the war that our family was completely insulated against the Great Depression of the 1930s, and in fact actually came out far ahead of where we were going into it. My great-grandfather had the foresight to use his money to buy up assets of his failed competitors. He offered them more money than the banks would, and they all predictably sold out and became managers of his ever-growing operations. His son, my grandfather, had similar luck in World War II, though he made more money selling weapons to Nazis and other unsavory folks under the table than he could ever make selling weapons and supplies to the Allies. Congressional investigations into war profiteering left my family completely unscathed. One rumor suggested that during the hearings, my grandfather actually had two leading senators on the subcommittee that recommended subpoenas on the payroll. My father did not work at all. He simply hired managers to put his money to work at interest. My father's managers bought commodity stocks at the right time, and they were especially crafty at noticing speculation bubbles, which greatly benefited my family. He bought oil stocks and sold them when there was a worldwide oil shortage in the 1970s. He bought stocks in diamonds and had no compunction doing business with apartheid South Africa. He bought huge quantities of hard metals on the cheap and seemed to know when the floor was just about to drop out of the market, and so he sold out and made a killing. Around the time I was born, he bought into high-tech stocks in California and Seattle, which turned out to be fantastic earners over the next 30 years. It seemed that while the rest of the country went bankrupt over and over and over again, my family continued to profit just by buying in and selling out at the right time. And I must admit, both my father and to that much greater extent, I, benefited absolutely and relatively from the pro-business policies of both the Democratic and the Republican administrations, which seemed, starting in the early 1980s, bent on collecting taxes from most of the country so they could hand the revenues over to us and people just like us, wrapped up in a nice little bow. Those in government were wealthy themselves, and so naturally they were convinced that rich people were the only ones who knew how to run the economy. Their resulting policies gave us free reign in the economy. The thing that benefited us most was the tax code, which was so Byzantine that only excellent tax lawyers and small armies of accountants could possibly understand it. As a result, we ended up minimizing our tax liability to almost zero by the end of each year and ensconcing vast sums of our wealth in tax shelters both at home and abroad. Without a doubt, we rewarded the politicians' singular, singular, blind, and inexplicable faith in us by chipping in our pocket change to their re-election campaigns. Those who did not vote our way didn't get our money, and so they lost their election bid. It was just that simple, and it was all completely legal. My great-great-grandfather was the last member of my family to actually have done any real work. And it never occurred to me, not one single moment of one single day, that there were hundreds of millions of people around me all the time who worked like dogs and were treated worse than that by the people like me. These people never experienced a single day that was similar to any given day that I experienced by doing absolutely nothing. Some worked until they were exhausted and could barely make their rent and keep food on their tables. They could certainly not afford to get sick, but meanwhile, I never lifted a finger unless I wanted to. 
I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. I should return to the topic at hand. I earned my bachelor's degree in marketing and psychology from the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis in 2006 when I was 22 years old. I chose U of M specifically because my mother and father were dead set against it. I had a rebellious streak. I thought I would do something different than what my parents wanted me to do out of spite. At the university, I made friends who shared my class attitudes and worldview. I didn't associate with people who were poor. I was comfortably politically liberal, supportive of nominally left-wing social causes of the day, but also indulged in patronizing attitudes about the poor and working classes. I left school debt-free, unlike most of my peers, because I was lucky enough to have parents to pay the bill outright. The school even eventually named a new biotech lab after my father. I had no idea that debt was a pernicious problem for others, and arrogantly believed that if I could do it, everyone could do it. I didn't work while I was in school, and I graduated while skipping most, more than half of my classes. I earned a C average and believed I could do anything I decided to do. After graduation, I decided to work hard and build my own company from the ground up. With a relatively small $5 million loan from my father, I relocated to Las Vegas, Nevada, and quickly became licensed to sell homes to wealthy people. This was back when Las Vegas was a thriving desert community rather than a small refueling station between Salt Lake City and San Diego. But then, the 2008 housing collapse hit the nation, and I earned uncountable sums for buying up foreclosed homes and selling them back to investors. Footnote. For those who are not aware of the concept of foreclosure, it is where a person cannot afford to make payments on their mortgage, which is a loan secured by the property that they live in, and the bank that owns the loan comes and takes the home. This happened all the time in my day, and while I didn't see things this way, I have come to see it as one of the most repulsive forms of predation known. It's only just short of peonage, where a person is forced to put up his own body as a surety for a debt, or slavery, where a person is captured and treated as a piece of property in the same way that a hammer or a toy is a piece of property, and who can then be used as the slaver sees fit. I quickly opened offices in most of the cities in the U.S. where housing markets had gone bust, and I made a killing on speculation. I also dumped money into the stock market to buy up stocks that other investors had sold off in a panic. When the recovery started, I was sitting on a mountain of wealth. By the time I was 27 years old, I had made enough money on my own to no longer need the support of my parents, and by the time I was 30, I was counted as a multi-billionaire in my own right. But to add to that, when my father died unexpectedly, shortly before my 31st birthday, I inherited the first down payment on my inheritance, which equaled more than $50 billion. In my day, that was more money than I could ever possibly spend on anything. Needless to say, I was never in need of money and enjoyed every material comfort imaginable. As I look backward at my life in the 21st century, I can easily see the mechanics of the structure from which I and my family benefited. Mine was what people of my day call an amazing success story. My story which was a pure fiction told by people of my time, went like this. I started with nothing, and through a specific combination of luck and skill that eluded most people entirely, I worked my way up to success within just 10 years. Interestingly enough, the same story was told about me regardless of whether or not the teller was poor or wealthy. People would congratulate me on my amazing fortune. They would laud my business acumen. They would ask for my opinion on investments that would, according to their theory, help bring them along too. My face was regularly in the paper. I was asked to speak on television and give advice on investment. And like a good citizen, I paid every cent of tax I was legally obligated to pay, though it was quite a bit less than 
my just share of the burden because I had a bevy of excellent tax lawyers and accountants. I paid my employees a good wage with excellent benefits, though I made demands of their time that forced many of them to choose between working for me and beginning a family, or choosing recreation, or any other number of other things that would take their time and attention away from their job, which, by the way, was to make me money. And when they stopped making me money, I fired them without regard to what they would do next to earn enough to feed themselves and their family. That was not my concern. More than anything, I did it all with a clean conscience, knowing and being constantly informed by all of society that the money I made, I deserved, because I had worked so incredibly hard to make it. I believe that my wealth benefited the lower classes, and the more wealth I had, the wealthier others would naturally become. I created jobs in the parlance of my time. My taxes paid for schools for poor kids. I was open-minded about race and thought of myself as a feminist. I sat on a board of a foundation that worked for LGBT rights, as nebulous a term as that was for people who, like me who weren't members of that community ourselves. I also sat on a board of another organization that helps starving kids in Africa. Footnote. I put these two causes in quotes because to this day, I couldn't tell you what good either organization actually did for anyone real. But those organizations, as with all foundations like them, were primarily designed to help liberals feel good about themselves rather than to actually make change, especially since many of those involved were more a part of the problem than part of the solution. I patronized the arts and even donated money to Habitat for Humanity, which was a charity designed to cheaply build homes for poor people. You might say that I was the very model of a successful liberal in my day. To my view now, looking backward from the 22nd century, my life seems obscene. This is the great gift I have been given but do not deserve in the least. The ability to step entirely outside of my life and look at it from more than 100 years in the future. As I visit the libraries today, there is no mention of myself in the 21st century. For all I accomplished, my own story did not survive the test of time because the things my own society valued are no longer valued by the society in the 22nd century. Therefore, my importance as a wealthy person ended when the social arrangement that rewarded me for being wealthy ended. The only records of my existence are those buried deep in the back issues of periodicals and that which is being written right now. For all you know, my story is the story of an oddity that came from the past through a freak accident that was never meant to happen. Everyone in the 22nd century knows me not because of my amazing success, which used to serve as an example to people, but because I no longer fit in. It is truly amazing to me the difference 120 years makes. So much for my biography. At this point, I should inform you that I am not a physicist or anything like one, and cannot begin to tell those who are how the now-famous time machine that brought me here works. If you are reading this account for specifications and schematics on how to build your own version, or if you wish to add your voice to the nearly ubiquitous chorus from the scientific community that such a machine as mine could not possibly have brought me here, you'll have to apply for those specifications to the Minnesota State University at Moorhead, Minnesota, Department of Theoretical Mechanics, which is currently studying the machine in its laboratory under a grant from the Department of Infrastructure. Inasmuch as the machine was mine, I have donated it to them to study. I'll add that I am not entirely convinced that I understand all of what happened to me or to our society since I was born. The NHA believes that this historical narrative will be of some value as a first-hand historical record, but you should understand that my life was previously spent in leisure and idleness, and though the conditions of my existence have not been substantially altered since my arrival here in this time, the civic obligations required of me, which include a basic understanding of the political ideology of this nation, have dramatically expanded. In short, 
I have spent a considerable portion of my time learning things that come second nature to even school kids today, and still do not think that I have even the slightest grasp of it yet. In time, I suppose. Hence the title of the report, The Practical Effects of Time Travel. While not a technical document by any stretch of the imagination, it nonetheless chronicles the effect that my strange journey through time had on me, and more correctly, upon my worldview. Arriving as I did in the 22nd century is like being dropped into a foreign country. Eventually you learn the language to the point where you can begin making sense of your surroundings, but at first none of your memories fit together with any regular order. They are without context. So too was my experience among the people of the 22nd century, at first anyway. This report, however, does serve as a testament to my utter bewilderment following my arrival. To summarize, if you can imagine a world where everything you knew was suddenly gone in an instant, and in the blink of an eye you were the sole remaining survivor of a lost civilization, you would have an accurate but completely incomplete glimpse of the sense of loss and confusion which I experienced during my first days among you. I am therefore almost entirely dependent upon those whose lives were but briefly interrupted by my arrival, and then upon my own personal experiences from that point on. I have intended to title the report, rather more simply, Ethical Socialism, but an earlier reviewer suggested that this title might create some issues among the audience. I am aware that this society does not call its general ideology socialism, but certainly prefers correctly ordered. Those I have spoken with have taken great pains to point this out to me. But where I come from, your society is most certainly a socialist society, in a matter of speaking. In fact, it seems you have instituted a system where your main thinkers have determined that a socialist arrangement of society is the most ethical arrangement of society, or vice versa. And everything that has been described to me suggests what people used to call socialism. I don't think anyone today finds that word as inflammatory as they did in my time, but to preempt an expected deluge of demands for modification, I've chosen a different title for the work. Thank you for your patience and your interest in my story, as well as your indulgence of my shortcomings. If there are major errors as to fact in this narrative account, I invite you to write me, care of the NHA in Washington, D.C. At some point, I, I may be willing to release an updated edition with historical facts corrected. Julia C. Benatz, November 30th, 2144. The Supernova Earth Show. We're on because we like to hear ourselves talk. This underwriting grant is brought to you by Flaming Affair. Are you tired of the same old boring clothes? Want to rebel against all authority? Are you miserable all the time? Don't worry, it's not your fault. No one in this world can possibly understand your pain, and why should they? After all, this world is meaningless. Never fear, we've got just the thing for you. It's Flaming Affair, the one-stop destination for all your emo needs. Here at Flaming Affair, you don't need to worry about living up to society's expectations. You can be different, just like everyone else. Here at Flaming Affair, we believe that nothing spells individuality quite like dyeing your hair purple, painting your fingernails black, wearing your pants below your butt, and piercing any and all parts of your body. Absolutely convinced you're a vampire? 
We won't argue with you. We know that nothing in the world is as important as your pain. So come on down every Friday for our gothic poetry readings. Nothing is quite as fulfilling as whining about one's emotional emptiness. So come on down and be part of the flock. Flaming Affair, the store for all your emo needs. Warning, shopping at Flaming Affair may cause apathy, chronic depression, ugly hairstyles, shortages of black clothing, Lyme disease, fallout boy, and in some cases, death. I'm Victor, and you're listening to Supernova Earth. Prologue, The Allegory of the Mountain. A brief biography now completed, I need to pause a moment to address my own century. When I first arrived and the story of my arrival became public, many people in the 22nd century spent a considerable amount of time asking me questions that had nothing to do with me or with the physics of time travel. They focused primarily on whatever mental artifacts that I brought with me into the present day. Their question mostly inquired into various pop trends that they had heard about in history books. It was admittedly a bit bizarre. I asked myself what I would ask a person who had just arrived from the early 19th century, and it would never have occurred to me to ask, what was it like to ride on a steamboat on the Erie Canal, or what was it like to see a bare knuckles boxing match down on the docks, or what sort of activities did you do on the 25th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence? I think most reporters were satisfied with whatever I answered and printed all of it. They were not, unlike reporters of my day who would publish every moronic and vapid utterance and report on any mundane activity undertaken by even D-list celebrities and unqualified neophytes running for political office. If I happened to accidentally know what they were talking about, then so much the better. But after a while, one particular interview caught me by surprise and required a lot of thought from me. The questions asked by this reporter from a magazine known as The Radical confounded me when they were first asked, and I am afraid I did not do well in the interview. The man who identified himself as Alexander Feige asked me to explain how it was that people from my generation tolerated such gross social inequality, which is obviously, to you all, a measure of immorality that has been exceeded only a few times in the history of humankind. He asked me how a monster by which he later clarified he meant an aberrant oddity with values so foreign and outside of the mainstream as mine initially were, who benefited from the squalor of countless millions of others, could nonetheless exist in society and see this inequality but do nothing about it. The question stung me very deeply. I did not have a satisfactory answer at the time, and he abruptly ended the interview when I began to cry. This interview has gone too far, he simply said, handed me a poem that I have printed in the appendices of this memoir, and excused himself for being rude to me. But I think that I have his answer now, not as an attempt to justify anything or say that it was right or anything but to illustrate the social order of my day. As I am not trained in moral philosophy, I suppose this will have to do for an explanation. And I will simply add my thought that the society of the 22nd century is, in all ways, immeasurably preferable to that of the 21st century. As strange as the times seemed to me when I first arrived, I must have seemed doubly bizarre to those I encountered. The material development of the society, which has been accomplished over the decades since your revolution of conscience, is very impressive. The technology you use today really is quite different in many ways from the technology I was used to. But these technical advances over the last 120 or so years are quite superficial compared to your moral and social development. Technological change is not something I really want to dwell on, because technological development forms a sort of feedback loop with social change, driving and being driven in turn by it. There is a much more fundamental outlook toward humanity now that you all have undergone what you call the revolution of conscience, but what I personally think should be termed the Great Awakening.
To get a handle on the difference, I asked you, the reader, to imagine a society bent entirely in the service of a single person. It is probably very difficult for you to imagine, but please try. This is a society where the individual's interest and benefit matters more than the benefit of the entire society, and where all productive forces are aimed at ensuring that this individual obtains fabulous wealth without any regard to what happened to the rest of the people. Here, this person's interest finds its way into public policy, even though the majority of humankind doesn't have a real or qualitative say in the matter. In this society, the poor are asked for votes, their only political possession, by this one person, in order for this individual to control the levers of power for his or her own benefit. This nation must seem backward to you as people who have never known anything other than the life under your current system. But to me and my contemporaries who lived in the world that has now passed entirely away, the society that resembles my above description was not only normal, it was viewed as just. This statement alone has caused a number of people I have encountered to nearly faint in disbelief. That such social inequality, which you all view as patently immoral, could ever have been considered to be just by the entire country and world is completely inconceivable to you. And yet what I say is absolutely true. I will offer you an allegory that will help make it much clearer. We assumed in my day that all people were mountain climbers, and their common goal was the summit of some great mountain. All people, for reasons that will soon become clear, were acutely aware that they should strive for the summit of the mountain or perish in the attempt. The apparent justice of the structure, which modern people find so repugnant, lay in the perceived equality of starting point of all people, perpetuated by an ideological commitment to a system of social organization called liberalism. I understand that you all learn about liberalism in school, but your academic study of the ideology, I fear, is woefully incomplete. In my day, it was a central tenet of liberalism, and therefore a widely held view, that everyone could theoretically reach the top of this great mountain, and therefore the only correct ethical consideration for an individual was doing just that. We lived in a society that asserted that all people were born equally. This was even expressed in our founding documents. All men were created equal and were endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, among them life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In the mindset of the 21st century liberal, everyone's success in life was therefore entirely their own responsibility. If they were successful, it was because they worked hard, first and foremost. They were smart, and they got the right education. They made all the right choices that helped them find the easiest and quickest path to the top of the mountain. Meanwhile, people who didn't make it did not possess those virtues and characteristics. Our history was littered with people who supposedly started out with nothing and made their way to the top through sheer willpower, a little luck, but most importantly, a strong moral character and drive that allowed them to overcome all adversity. As I mentioned, my great-great-grandfather was one of these people. We had a word for that sort of success. We called it rags to riches, though half the time the rags were made of the finest silk, and there was indeed little actual temporal distance between the two states of rags and riches. But we told these stories of these people anyway to reinforce the idea that a positive outcome was the result of hard work and dedication and had nothing to do with dumb luck or arbitrary or unearned advantage. Those who made it to the peak were deemed successful, and those who fell short were pitied. But not so much pitied. These people were despised and labeled failures. They were judged to be morally lacking because they had failed to work hard enough, to struggle long enough, to make enough money, to work the correct jobs, to have enough stuff. 
We viewed it as an individual's fault if they could not find a job, though they may be willing to work three. We considered that those who never earned enough to leave our slums were nonetheless content to live in poverty and decadence. And we judge an individual's failure to be a result of a life's worth of poor decision-making. If only he or she had started making the correct choices at birth, his or her outcomes would have been radically different than it was by the time he was arrested at the age of 17 for armed robbery and she was a single mother of two by the age of 19. If only they had spent their youth in more industrious pastimes instead of running with a crowd of hoodlums. They wouldn't have turned into the neighborhood crack dealer, killed dead in the streets at the age of 24 by a trigger-happy neighborhood vigilante who was standing his ground. In other words, there was something deficient about these individual people's dedication to the project of summiting the mountain. And this was an implicitly moral failure, tied directly to the material failure and hardships that these people experienced in their lives. I tell you honestly, I was born just a few feet below the top of the mountain, and therefore found it incredibly easy to summit whenever I wanted to, with no real effort. And for my decision to finally summit, I was treated as a paragon of moral virtue in my society. Many of my fellow human beings were born considerably farther down the slope, and through the right sort of sacrifice and blind luck, might one day hope to join me at the top. And hundreds of millions of others, through no fault or moral failing of their own, were born underneath the mountain, and spent their entire miserable existence trying in vain to dig themselves out into the free air. You might say they worked harder than I did, and never got anywhere. They likely suffocated long before they or their kids ever saw the light of day. But to give you an idea of the sort of society that I was born into, it was these people who were called the failures and who were called the leeches by the snobs in my circle, who already had everything given to them, for deigning to ask my sort for a hand or for a shovel. No, for even needing one. Though they were often too proud to ask for it, despite their miserable condition. And it was my sort, born on the top of the mountain, which even the poorest people argued were fit to be the leaders of my society, though they themselves struggled for even the tiniest draft of air. While this situation should create a tremendous moral dilemma in and of itself, it became worse when you remember that one's position on the mountain determined one's relationship to the levers of power and authority in my society. Those at the top of the mountain created the road to the top and employed people further down the slope to build it for them, and did so in a way that deliberately limited the climb of others. We saw our privilege as something worth having, but only because we could deny it to others. Having more than we could ever possibly use was not valuable in and of itself. Footnote. In fact, the cost of upkeep alone for a lifestyle of the wealthy and the tax burden associated with the sort of luxury that we bore was enough to beggar those in the middle and working classes of my day. But for many of those described as super wealthy, the tax burden was more akin to a rounding error. And who knows what the poorest classes would have done if they had suddenly been blessed with a tenth of my fortune. You may find the argument repulsive today, but this was one of the primary arguments made by those at the top against greater social equality. Since moral judgment was tied to the position on the mountaintop, several of those closer to the top than the mass argued that those lower on the mountain did not possess the moral character to adequately handle a higher position on the mountain. I saw politicians, those who were responsible to manage the public trust, make this argument. They referred to the poor as the leech class, and they got a good portion of the people, even some of them who were poor themselves, to use those terms to refer to other poor people. They equated welfare and wealth redistribution programs with moral slavery, and they said that help from higher up the mountain, 
debased the humanity of the recipient. Assistance discouraged hard work, they argued. It encouraged immorality in a form of indolence and sloth. Then, they, we, did not mention that we already saw them as moral failures unworthy of that privilege that we possess by virtue of our birth. That position, along with all its luxury and benefit, was just for us. And from my perch at the peak, I looked down on even the politicians and the pitiful climbers who saw themselves as the upper middle class and breathed a sigh of relief because, for all practical purposes, my life, with the degree of comfort that my inherited wealth and position bought me, was essentially the situation those lower than me desired but would never, ever achieve. I spent my days enjoying a fortune that I could never possibly spend. And since I was satisfied, I had no reason to seek to change the arrangement that I, and people like me, had designed to ensure that we stayed at the top of the mountain. I liked that others strove to be like me. It validated everything I was doing. I liked that I could patronize this politician today and that news organization tomorrow and that other charity the next day, and then they would, in turn, work on my behalf. And if I withdrew my patronage, they would work extra hard just to get it back. But I nearly forgot to mention... One other reason I never worked for change in the system is because I could also see from my heights that there was a monster who lived on that mountain and who stalked everyone it could get. That monster was called poverty, but it is more equivalent to what you today refer to as need. From my vantage point, I could watch that monster stalking people who were climbing the mountain. Sometimes people would fall in their attempt to climb to safety, and then the monster would simply devour them and destroy them. And people in my place would shake their heads sadly as we watched the carnage and pity those who had fallen. But what could be done? After all, it was our belief that there was something about that person, him or herself, that caused them to slip or to give up and then be destroyed by the beast. I could see others running over each other, stomping their neighbors into the dirt to avoid this creature. As their neighbors fell, these people would use their bodies as ladders to climb higher up the mountain, thinking that they might be safe if they just climbed higher. And then the beast would get their neighbor, and the survivor would think he or she was safe, until their neighbor came along and did the same to them. Knowing where poverty would strike was an advantage I had. But in the back of my mind, I always knew that my only true security lay in the fact that poverty lurked around on the lower levels of the mountain, picking the low-hanging fruit, if you will. As long as there remained people in the valley, the monster would never need to climb higher, and would never get to me and my friends at the top of the mountain. Occasionally, avalanches and landslides would take those people who had climbed sufficiently high to be generally safe back down to the bottom of the mountain. These landslides were often random events, through no fault of any individual caught up in any one of them. A whole slope would just let loose and crash them back down to the bottom. In these instances, a weakness in the structure itself caused the slide. But occasionally, it was the fault of far too many people looking out for their own individual benefit without regard to anything else, seeking to take the same trail to the top of the mountain or standing on the exact same cliff that caused the slide, and would prove disastrous to everyone who happened to be beneath them as well. These landslides and avalanches would take out whole segments of the population in a single cataclysmic event, knocking them all to the bottom, killing some of them in the fall, crippling others, and putting them all at the mercy of the beast, just when they thought they had found some measure of safety. Safe though I was, the thought always lurked in my mind that eventually the beast might also come for me. Suppose it had destroyed all the people below me. Suppose I had let too many people into the relatively safe spot that I also occupied and eventually became overly crowded. Suppose I was pushed down the mountain by new arrivals seeking revenge for the security I had enjoyed despite the carnage below. 
Suppose the mass of people on the top suddenly attracted the attention of the beast. The eventual arrival of poverty in my vicinity was an idea more terrifying to me and those like me than any other we could conceive of. So it was our sole job to protect the privileges we enjoyed. This fear eventually consumed us just as the beast of need consumed the people lower on the mountain. We became so obsessed with the protection of the privilege we believed that we had so righteously obtained that we began building walls up to prevent more people from joining us. We had folks who were willing to go out and kick people who were close enough back down the hill a little ways. We built locked doors, gated communities, and social institutions that kept us entrenched in our place. But at the end of the day, even all those provisions were not enough. We were the most paranoid group of all the people on the mountain, except those sorry people that had climbed high, but were never sure whether they had climbed high enough. At the end of it all, I can see an entire system that was designed by people like me for the benefit of me and those in my similar situation, which did not help those who needed help the most, and that was rife with walls and locked doors designed to keep others and the problems they brought with them out of our space. Those poorer than me all believe that, with just a determined effort, they could eventually end up like me, and never conceived of the possibility that I might be aware that there is only so much room at the top. Nobody sought to change the system because there was no incentive to do so. To you in the 22nd century, the answer to the problem, and it was a problem, was both obvious and easy to accomplish. At some point, your ancestors decided to unite to slay the beast of need. With the beast dead, it was no longer desirable for any class of people to sit on the top of the mountain and look down upon others. We at the top must have also realized how precarious our own position was and how our sitting upon it surely did not entitle us to look down upon others. And then there was no longer any reason for the people at the top to build walls up against their neighbors or for people to attach moral value to one's position on the mountain. Once there was no longer any reason to seek the top of the mountain, it became socially acceptable for people to find the best, most suitable place for themselves rather than the one farthest away from the now-dead monster. Suddenly, moral value in society was untethered to one's material position, and only then, I suppose, could your society fully wake up and begin directing the activities of the society for the society's benefits. Only then could ethical socialism or correct ordering of society become possible. But there was also a beneficial effect for those who had previously occupied the summit. It also gave my kind of people the opportunity and the incentive to come down and meet the rest of the people in our society. The same people who we had condescendingly mocked for their moral failure and feared because they theoretically had the power to displace us if we were not vigilant. Together, we could work for a new society, each contributing his or her talents, rather than wasting energy and effort on mere survival. At last, society was united and began moving forward together in common cause. I assume the people at the bottom forgave the people at the top for their monstrous use and the attitude toward the lower down. I wouldn't blame them if they didn't, but I have not read of any mass bloodletting accompanying your revolution. It seems that, on the contrary, the society found some use for those of my class that was beneficial to the rest of society after all. And it appears that the formerly wealthy accepted their new roles in society willingly, likely because cooperation seemed far more reasonable and secure than competition. History doesn't make any mention of the switch, just that the change in mindset captured the imagination and the energy of the entire population. With poverty slain and the society united, let us proceed to the narrative of my own most unusual story. This is Configure Represent the UK. 
I'm checking in with my boy Doc Stodden on Supernova Earth. Peep it. Peace. Hello, I'm Paula Colton, speaking to you on behalf of the Supernova Earth Show. I want to say that in 2004, I made a real serious mistake. I voted for a major party candidate. Immediately, after I put my mark on the ballot and handed it in, my voice began to change. It sounded more mechanical, more like a computer every day. Slowly, I noticed other changes as well. My mind, while able to process mathematical equations a lot faster, also became less able to conduct critical thinking. While I, like most Americans, was discouraged from using this skill in my everyday life by my job, by the television, and by the government I cast my vote for, nonetheless when the ability to use it was taken from me and I tried to use it several months later, I noticed the loss. My movements became more robot-like, I began feeling less and less tired and experienced increased mental clarity, but this was compensated for by a loss of grace in ballet, which I had loved and practiced for years. I became able to perform my job much better, but less able to perform in bed. The love I felt for my children also disappeared, to be replaced by a love for shopping. I began consuming everything. I bought a lot of trash, not because I really wanted it, but because I felt I should be patriotic. I bought my first Britney Spears record. I bought a Pasta Express. I even bought a pet rock, because they air retro now. Things I would never have considered buying before are now sitting in my garage, so much, so that we had to move our two new SUVs outside. I have no idea how I'm going to pay for it all, but error, 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 but that's not important right now. It's like I lost all ability to feel anything. And all, because I just had to cast my vote for one of the major parties. I should have listened to Doc and Dan when they said that voting for one of the major parties makes you a slave. Why didn't I listen? But now I have a chance, it is a chance to make things different in my life. My vote will be more mechanical than the last time I got to vote, but I'm not going to vote for Democrats or Republicans this time. I will vote for someone who will not win. My programming agrees with the logic that it is not so important that you vote for the winner, but that you vote. I recognize that both parties support my consumerist ways. I realize that both parties support my unfeeling operation of basic devices on a day-to-day -day basis. So it should be clear to me who to mechanically pull the lever for. But those aren't really the things that I'm interested in, are they? I'm interested in feeling, I'm interested in being a human being. I'm interested in getting my conscious mind back. So I will vote, but I will vote for nobody this election day. Finally, I will begin thinking for myself once more. This has been a public service announcement for the Supernova Earth Show. Error, 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 error. Hey, Billy, I wonder what happens when you press the button that says Supernova Earth.